Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Joining me today is current CEO and founder of the Management Trust and former Canadian Idol judge and tragically hit manager, Mr. Jake Gold. Jake, how are you, man? Hey, Brent. How are you? Great. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Now, Jake, you've managed Big Rec, Sass Jordan, The Watchmen, and The Hip for, is it 17 years? Almost 18, yeah. Was it 86? 86 till 2003 inclusively. Wow. So let me ask you a question now. We were, we were talking about The okay, Hip. Okay, I'll let you ask me a question. <laughs> <laughs> how, did you, how did you come into contact with The Hip? Like, How did this whole thing start? Uh, my... My business partner and I were sent a cassette tape by a friend of theirs. Okay. Oh. Um, a family friend. Really? And um, we listened to it. Yeah. Um, he listened to it on a Friday in his office. Okay. He uh, called me and said, oh, uh, my friend's over here listening uh, in a meeting, and we put this cassette on, and it's kind of interesting, and we should see these guys. I'll play it for you Sunday because him and I were going to the Blue Jay game on Sunday. Okay. He said, I'll play it for you in the car on Sunday. I yeah. said, okay. So I listened to it. I said, you're right. It's interesting. And we set up a gig to see them a week later. Wow. At a place called Larry's Hideaway, which used to be at the corner of um, uh, Carlton and Jarvis. Yeah. And, uh, but the building's been knocked down since. Yeah. So do you remember what the songs were on the demo tape? No, I should. I, I've, I've been asked that before and I, I should talk to Johnny because uh, he'll remember. I don't remember what songs were on the demo tape, and, and it wasn't really the songs. It was Gord's voice. Okay. That kind of stuck out. It sort yeah. of cut through, you know. It was, yeah. It really cut through. You, I was going to ask you, that was my next question. So what really kind of jumped out at you? Would Presumably you'd heard a lot of these tapes. It wasn't until we saw them live, though, that we that we were fully committed. Yeah. 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 Well, it was wasn't that fully complete, fully committed. It was more like, you know, we heard it. Oh, this is interesting. Let's see what they're like live. Yeah. And then when we booked the show and we went and saw them, that's where the whole thing went. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic, man. Yeah, it was about anywhere between ten and thirty seconds into the first song. Really? I turned to my partner and I said, "We need to sign these guys tonight." No way. Yeah. Wow, you knew right away. No, it was instant. Yeah. It was a special band. You talk man. about chills. Yeah. Instant. Skin vibration. Yeah, I can tell you the song, too. What was it? They did a cover of Them's um, I Can Only Give You Everything. No way. Yeah. And the way they opened is gorgeous. said into the microphone, I Can Only Give You Everything. Yeah. And then they broke into the song. And someone at the table, because we were all watching, said, oh, good attitude, thinking that that was his attitude. I can yeah. only give you everything. Yeah. Not realizing they were about to play that song. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not a popular song either. Maybe they didn't. No. Uh, no, yeah. you'd really have to know music to know that song. Yeah. So that was a bold choice back then too, right? To, yeah, but that's, that's, what they, like that. that's what they did. Like they were, they used to do a lot of covers, but they were sort of the B-sides of your favorite band's covers. That was them, which is Van Morrison's first band. Like, right. you know, they would they would introduce Susie Q as Dale Hawkins, Susie Q, not not Creedence Clearwater Revival, Susie Q. They yeah. would play B-sides of Stone songs and Door songs and, you know, all kinds of songs like that to fill out their set. Yeah. So we were talking before we uh, started rolling here about my favorite hip record, Road Apples. Mm-hmm. Road Apples is not the original name of that record. It's something else. It was Saskadelphia. 
I only know part of this story. And I well, wanna, let me hear your version. So I, the version basically that I'd heard was that, and, and this might be completely false, actually, but now I've got the man here to, okay. to validate. So the version that I heard was that the band wanted to call that record Saskadelphia mm-hmm. because they wanted to kind of incorporate you know, an American feel to it because they wanted to break America. That's probably not right. No, that's, uh, not, that's not at all right. So the record company said, no, we don't want to do that try again and the band said they were pissed and they said you know what we'll just call it road apples because road apples was was a term for horseshit so that part's correct okay so the reason they wanted to call it saskadelphia is it was basically the idea that they were on the road so much they didn't know if they were in saskadoon <laughs> or philadelphia okay like it was that was the idea that that was just like a amalgamation of every city you've ever been to into one title. OK. OK. But the 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 record company went, that's a horrible title. Oh. Like, what does that mean? Blah, 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 blah. They didn't so. see the comedy in it or anything. So then <laughs> so huh. the band came to me and they said, we're going to call the record Road Apples. OK. And so I sold it to the record company as, yes, songs born from the road. <laughs> <laughs> so it was you. That's hilarious. What? So you actually put that spin on it because the record company didn't know that what no, Road we Apples were. No, we were dealing with people from California. Right. They had no fucking clue. But that's the funniest part is that they, they basically said, well, let's call it horseshit because we don't care. And right. the record company said, well, that's a great idea. Said, we like that. Road and Apples, you songs born from the road. <laughs> <laughs> that's so which, great. Which, for what it's worth, they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because a lot of the songs were jams before they ended up on the record. Right. So that is so funny. <laughs> you know, the, the you know, my job in a lot of ways was to make sure they got to do whatever they wanted to do artistically. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I would have to be uh, coercive yeah. in all kinds of different ways. That that must have been a challenge, right? Yeah. Because a, a guy like Gord is is very artistically focused. You learn a lot. From people like that. Yeah. You know, you learn a lot. You learn um, how to, uh, I wouldn't say every single time I had to do those kinds of things was a positive uh, situation, but it didn't matter. It was like, that's what I was there to do. So, yeah. Good for you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Shall we get to your tunes? Sure. All right. We're going to kick it off with Peter Gabriel in your eyes. Well, I was always a huge Genesis and Peter Gabriel fan, even yeah. back to like 1971, 72. And when he left the band, he made some great records with mm-hmm. some great songs, but so kind of put him on the map. Yes. And I remember talking to a friend of mine, Andy Frost, who was a DJ at Q107. Love him. And Andy knew I was a huge Peter Gabriel fan, and he wasn't as much a Peter Gabriel fan as I was. Okay. And and Peter Gabriel's solo stuff wasn't a staple on radio or rock radio. And at the time, Sledgehammer came out, and I kind of didn't like the song so much. It was very commercial for mm. Peter Gabriel. And he made that great claymation video. And, and Andy calls me up. He goes, the best song on this record's In Your Eyes. It's on side two. Yeah. Because you had to, you know, it was a vinyl. You had to turn the thing over. And I hadn't gotten to it yet. Okay. And I remember turning the record over and listening to it and going, he's right. This may be the best song he's ever done. Mm-hmm. And then seeing it live on that tour yeah. and the extended version live 
was pretty amazing. And every time I put that on, I get that feeling. And then they used it in that movie, Say Anything, I guess it was. Yes, um, the Ghetto Blaster yeah, and Yeah, be, and then it became a song of folklore. Oh, after God, that. yeah. It took on a whole new life. After yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Next, the Tragically Hip, Locked in the Trunk of a Car. So there was a lot of great hip songs prior to that. Oh, yeah. But when they first played me, the demos for fully completely and then when i heard the final version yeah it was classic hip in the extent of it it was quiet at the beginning yeah and then it exploded but it was really dark i wouldn't call it mean but it was eerie and when we did another roadside attraction in 1993 mm-hmm. they opened the saturday night at Markham Fairgrounds, and there was 40,000 people there. And I can still to this day remember standing on the side of the stage, and, you know, they opened with Robbie playing that opening opening melody part on the guitar, and then Johnny hits the drums and it explodes, and the lights went on the audience. Oh, really? And I'm on the stage looking out into the audience. To this day, I'm getting chills now talking about it. And you just see 40,000 people. Biggest show they ever did in Toronto. And the song exploded. And it was like, I'll never forget that moment. To me, that was like the greatest moment ever in working with them. In all the years I worked with them was that moment. And it was that song they were playing. Yeah. There was some other great moments overall moments but one particular moment it was that song and uh there was some really weird shit that went down about that song because there was a guy who had, i don't know if you ever heard about this but there was this guy who had committed murders and in his testimony he or something like this the 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 opp had heard that he had met gord backstage and confessed these murders and that the song was a about his confession. Oh. And it was and so we were getting called by the OPP and we had to say no this song was written like well before that and really? and oh yeah there was just this weird thing and cuz the song like they found somebody locked in someone's car that was killed so they they kind of thought that this guy had met Gord backstage at a Molson Park show and confessed to him and then Gord wrote a song about it it was like wow there was some yeah there was a lot of weird shit going on and then i had heard that i forget which record it was it may have even been that song mm-hmm. that someone i know that was in the um justice department at, for ontario mm-hmm. said part of the th- some of the things that came out of the transcripts with um bernardo yes. is that they were listening to that record Oh. When they were doing the crazy shit and it was like locked in the trunk of a car was this song that made them, you know. Oh, Jesus. So it was like there was a lot of weird shit caught up in that song. Yeah. And there was a while there where Gord wouldn't do it. Oh, really? Yeah. There was a lot, lot, lot of shows. And in fact, when they did their final show in Kingston, mm-hmm. they played outside of the five songs off the new record that they were playing every night, four or five songs. Yep. Because I don't know if you remember that tour, the final tour, they were doing four or five songs from each record. Yep. But every night they would change up which records. Okay. And that night they only played records, songs from the records I was involved with them, Mm -hmm. the the earlier stuff. And they played four songs off the new record, but they didn't play Locked in the Trunk of a Car. Mm. And I had yet to see them play that song on the tour. Okay. Mm. And they came out for the third encore. Right. And played locked in the trunk of a car. Ah. 
And that was actually the last song, if I remember correctly, that they played in terms of the encores. Did you watch the final concert? Yes, I did. I don't. That wasn't it, though, was it? People say it was Ahead by Century. It was. But my recollection is I thought Ahead by Century was before. They played Ahead by Century last. That was the uh, very last song they played together, I, I believe, was Ahead by yeah? Century. Okay. Yeah? Okay. Well, I was there, so I'm trying to remember. I don't think they cut it off early because they did come back for a third encore, and yeah. I don't know if it was on TV or not. Because mm, really? in the house, they they I never watched the show. Yeah, on TV because I was there. Okay, but I'd be I may I have it recorded, so I may go back and watch it just to see if they actually showed locked in the trunk of a car. I don't recall. I'd be interested to see, but I I'm I'm positive that Ahead by a Century was the very last song. Yeah, so maybe remember that. You maybe remember stuff like that. Yeah. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, there was all this weird stuff that went on with that song. So. Well, you know, it, at face value, it's pretty morbid. I mean, and the video is really creepy. Yeah, oh, right? extremely. Right? And Dave Powell, he just passed away about uh, less than a year ago. Yeah. He was the tour manager for a long time. He was the guy that was, you know, creeping around the ballpark and oh, in really? the trunk of the car trying to get out. And oh. he, he played that role. Oh. He was our tour manager. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Next, you've got Bob Marley and the Redemption song. There's just something about that song. First of all, every Bob Marley song is amazing. Mm -hmm. Bob Marley, I think, is the one artist who crosses generations, um, race, gender. He literally is one of those artists that everyone loves. Yeah. And you can be anywhere, and when Bob Marley comes on, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Like, nobody says, oh, turn that stuff off. That's the one thing that no one ever says. It's funny because I just thinking about it now, when we put Ziggy Marley on another roadside attraction in 1995, we were trying to find that one act to go on before the hip. And I happened to be on vacation in Jamaica mm -hmm. and Ziggy Marley was playing at the place where I was staying. And the guy who owned the place where I was staying and I were friends and he introduced me to Ziggy's tour manager slash manager. Okay. And I said, hey, would you, are you available this time of year? Because we were starting to put the acts together and we couldn't find that one act. You know, like 93, we had Midnight Oil. Yeah. And, you know, he says, yeah, we're available. I said, would you like to do a big like festival tour in Canada? He goes, yeah, that would be cool. So sure enough, I went back to Toronto and I went to everybody involved and said, what if we put Ziggy Marley on before yeah. the hip? And everyone thought, what a great idea because, you know, it was a big enough act. But it was also the kind of act that everyone would love. Oh, yeah, for sure. And um, and it worked out amazing. Yeah. But Redemption Song, um, Danny from The Watchmen used to do it a cappella in their show sometimes for an encore. Yep. And he has that kind of voice with a lilt in it that he can really pull it off. And it's just one of those songs that it's just pure voice and a little bit of acoustic guitar. And it's it's pretty meaningful. Oh, very. And every time it comes on, I just turn it up. Yeah. That's a great point you make about Bob Marley is that... In terms of crowd, people just generally like him, you know, regardless of if you're a reggae fan or a rock fan or a, even a hip hop fan. Everybody, you know, nobody really doesn't like Bob Marley. No, it's pretty impossible. In fact, you know, he's he's that kind of artist that in some ways he kind of ruined it for all the other reggae artists. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like if you're a reggae artist, it's like you're always going to be compared 
to Bob Marley. That's right. He's and the it, gold it, standard. Like, really, right? yeah, and it's almost like you you just all you need is legends and you don't really need anything else, it's you know, true. if you want to listen to reggae. <laughs> Let's listen to some reggae and like those who are reggae aficionados. Yeah will know a lot about a lot of other artists. And I, you know, having spent time in Jamaica, and I know a lot of the other artists. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when push comes to shove, I'll just put on Legends. Yeah, but that's really all you need. Yeah. But you see, that's a good point, too, is that you might challenge people who don't know a lot about reggae to to name another reggae musician outside of Bob Marley. No, because he he was the first to really cross over. And he's kind of the one that lasted longer than everybody else and in fact you know i remember there's some pretty good there was a band called the satellites i think in toronto there's some good reggae yeah, bands yeah. Yeah. from toronto and none of them could ever sell any records mm-hmm. and people said they don't sell records reggae doesn't sell because everyone copies from each other and that's the that's the culture yes. you know because when you go to jamaica you buy cassettes of on the street of people's reggae Oh, you know, it wasn't because no one really wanted to invest a lot in reggae. And they all said they only buy Bob Marley. People will buy Bob Marley, but everything else they trade. Really? Yeah. That is so interesting. Yeah. So it's tough to be a reggae artist when when you have someone like Bob Marley's. Yeah. All right. Cat Stevens is next and father and son. So. Um, I lost my father when I was 17, mm-hmm. and that song's always had like a soft spot for me because mm-hmm. it really is the story of and of a lot of father and son's life of, you know, you you trying to do your own thing. Your father doesn't really it's trying to give you advice on how, how to do your own thing, but you do it anyways. And I found myself later in life relating to that song more than I did when it came out. Yeah. Um, I was a big fan of Cat Stevens, always was, but it was later in life when I became a little bit more sentimental maybe or maybe uh, became aware of some of the things that my father had said to me that didn't really sink in at the time but came to me later in life. Yeah. It's a pretty beautiful song. If you know Cat Stevens and his history, that song was very personal to him. You know, he came from a pretty strict greek background in england uh here he is trying to be a musician probably against his parents wishes Mm. and that was a breakthrough album for him yeah great great song and and it's funny that you say that you know you you look back on that later on in your life and i think that you need that kind of period uh, of time to be more retrospective but as you get older you get more nostalgic and you look back on those things with a lot more favorability i find yeah it wasn't that unfavorable it was interesting i i remember sitting down with my father when i was 16 years old he was already diagnosed with leukemia we knew he was going to die he died a year later and he had been sort of in the peripherals of the record business and he had worked for these guys that made that manufactured eight tracks and cassettes Mm -hmm. as their general manager and then he himself was buying up deleted records by the truckload and reselling them and Mm -hmm. it was just product right like he could have been buying skates he could have been buying you know anything he was just buying and selling um they used to call them jobbers then okay and there was a lot of guys that did that. You'd buy a whole bunch of stuff. It still exists where you buy a whole bunch of stuff really cheap and you sell it to other people and you make so much a unit. Like they were buying vinyl for a nickel and selling it to a do- for a dollar to Sam's and Music World and all these guys. Okay. And then they would sell it for $1.99. So everyone made a dollar along the way and it was 
And I remember we're sitting at the Swiss Chalet at uh, Dufferin and Finch. And he says to me, this music business is a good business. You should think about it sometime. Yeah. Now, he, I just remember him saying that, but I don't ever remember going, oh, I'm going to listen to my dad. Mm. Fast forward, I'm in my mid-20s. I'm in the business. I'm, I'm a manager. I hadn't yet found the hip. Maybe I did. Maybe I did find the hip. I'm not sure. And I meet this guy. His name's Willie Sportelli. And Willie worked for one of the big distributors, record distributors. And I'm talking about the retail guys. I think he worked for Pindoff or one, one of the big ones. And we start talking, and uh, he says, Jake Gold, you ever, were you related to a guy named Fred Gold? And I said, he said, yeah, that was my dad. Mm. And he goes, he looks at me, and he goes, I met you when you were 13 years old, oh, when you wow. were 14 years old. And I said, oh, you were the guy. Because my dad had this guy yeah. that had really long hair, and I sometimes would go with my dad to a diner downtown and my dad would give him the lists of all the vinyls that was coming in and he would go through and decide which ones they would take and which ones they weren't taking. Ah. And Willie was my dad's guy. Wow. And it was then that I remembered my dad telling me I should get into the business. Wow. So this is like, like 10 years, at least 10 years later. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. But it was cause I met this guy that reminded me. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. So Cat Stevens, that song is kind of, you listen to it, you can hear the despair in his voice. And and he was part of a group of singers that had a certain sound. Mm-hmm. David Cousins from the Straubs, Peter Gabriel, that kind of edgy, it wasn't that pure voice kind of singing. Yeah. Uh, Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. They all had that kind of edgy, um, raspy type of voice. And that's yeah. probably why I was attracted to Gord's voice so much, because he had that same kind of sound. I was just going to propose that because Gord is a very unorthodox singer in that way, right? He, he didn't sing operatically. But he also no. didn't sing in a smooth, you know, typical singer's voice. It was it was very, there was, there was an accessibility about it. I, I think a lot of it had to do with you could hear the passion in the voice. It yeah. wasn't pure voice. You could hear the passion. And Gabriel said sang like that, Cat Stevens sang like that, and actually Gabriel and Cat Stevens have a connection because on the record Mona Bone Jacqueline, which be, was the record before T for the Tillerman, okay. there's 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 two connections that came off that record. There's a song called Lily White, yep. which ended up part of a title of a song off The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which is Lily White Lilith, okay. which was the, the final record Gabriel did with Genesis. Right. But Gabriel actually played flute on that record for Cat Stevens. Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, wow. So they were connected, which I found out after I was already fans of them. You know, it was just one of those things, one of those little trivia tidbits I'm giving you. Yeah, (laughs) I had no idea. That's great. All right, your last tune here is by Genesis, Peter Gabriel, and it's Supper's Ready. This is from Foxtrot, I think like 71 or 72. 71, yeah. So now this is, this song is 23 minutes long, right? Yes. It's 23 minutes long. But it's an it's an opus, yes. Because it isn't one song technically. If you if you look on even on the record, it breaks it down into like six sections. It reads more like a classical piece, yes. And it really is a whole bunch of separate songs, but they all connected with each other. Mm-hmm. And it was to most people who are fans of the Gabriel era Genesis, which to me is the best era Genesis, when they were less commercial. It's sort of the standard. Yeah. When they when they toured on Selling England by the Pound, they closed the show with it. Oh, okay. And then there were no encores. Mm. Well, you wouldn't need one after, after all that. 
you know, because if there's there's great footage on YouTube of them playing that song live and yeah. in the various costumes Gabriel puts on throughout the song. Mm-hmm. And um, and then how it ends, you kind of like, OK, you couldn't come out after this. And Peter Gabriel was like the stage the he used Shakespeare, he said that, you know, the plays the thing. Yeah. So he didn't feel encores were warranted. Ah, like we've already done it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So that that tour in late 73, 74 was all, there was no encores. Yeah. And that was on the Selling England by the Pound album that they toured on. But he would play, they would play Supper's Ready to close the show. And even recently, Steve Hackett's been on tour and he's doing his um, Genesis Revisited yes. thing. And they were, they closed the show before the encore. They do encores, but they closed the show with Supper's Ready. Really? They do the whole thing. I didn't know that. And the crowd goes mental. Yeah. Like crazy. I went with a bunch of, let's just say, high-level entertainment executives. Okay. Okay? Like guys that you would not expect to want to go see basically one guy from Genesis Mm -hmm. with a whole bunch of other guys playing the parts, covering old Genesis songs. And we were all old Genesis freaks. And we went to Massey Hall, and we were roaring at the end of the show yeah like when they finished supper's ready the place went crazy like they did in 1974 when they played massey hall really yeah wow yeah it was it was like that it was a a roar of like that you've never heard before wow and if you watch the the footage on youtube of them playing supper's ready yeah the best one is from the centre sportif in montreal which is the um the the venue um, on the University of Montreal campus, okay, which the Hip actually played. Um, oh. We did some legendary shows there in ni- in ninety three when we toured on fully completely. We did two nights there, and it's a four thousand seat venue. Okay, and the one on on YouTube of them, they have the whole concert of yeah. Genesis from that Selling England by the Pound tour. Yeah, and it's amazing. The whole then they have the musical box, also a very long song from Foxtrot. Yep. I mean from from Nurse. From Nursery Crimes? From Nursery Crimes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's from Nursery Crimes. And then Supper's Ready um, are, like, the highlights of the show. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate you coming in and telling me all that stuff. Anytime, Brent. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Subbury with Brent Jensen and my special guest, Mr. Jake Gold. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Subbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.